0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the PMNR Glass podcast, where we do brief reviews of current and recent literature in the field of PMNR. Uh, with me again today is Paolo. Uh, Paolo, how are you doing today? Hey, good, Ben. How you doing? And we're actually here at a PMNR. Um, I'm doing good by the way, I'm doing a live podcast, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Achilles tendinopathy.
1: Coming at uh, you live from New Orleans. Yeah,
0: so uh, this is our first on-site remote podcast. So the article is from the American Journal of Sports Medicine, it's Heavy Slow Resistance Versus Eccentric Training as Treatment for Achilles Tendinopathy, a Randomized controlled Trial and this is by Byron All uh, from 2015. Uh, so blow my mind. Cause I always thought that, uh,
1: eccentric training was the way to go with Achilles tendinopathy. So eat and we're going to touch upon this when we're discussing the article, but eccentric training had been the, has been Currently, the standard of treatment for Achilles tendinopathy used to be referred to as Achilles tendinitis. We'll touch upon that a little bit when we get into mm-hmm. the article. Um, but what this group did, and they're based out of the University of Copenhagen, is they were comparing heavy slow resistance to eccentric contractions. So concentric contractions versus eccentric contractions, both heavy loaded, but um, as treatment for Achilles tendinopathy, to see if you know, in altering the physical modality of the treatment, they could yield more positive results. This this is something that had already been has already been uh, more commonly researched in, like, uh, patellar tendinopathies mm-hmm. and other tendinopathies. So I guess what they were trying to do is apply it to Achilles tendinopathy and see what happened. So, um, like I said, the study was based out of the University of Copenhagen. As usual, I always like to go into the background of who it is that's conducting these, uh, these, these trials. Mm-hmm. And um, this one was headed by Dr. Ricky Byer who is a graduate degree, is a doctorate in physical therapy. He's done a lot of research in exercise trials, and he was teamed up with Dr. Michael Jayer, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who both is an MD and a PhD in exercise science. There are other researchers, you know, at AL, but Mm -hmm. um, they they were the the primary researchers. Um, So the abstract of the study is, as we were saying, eccentric training, has been shown to have uh, positive effects on other tendinopathies. So they were they wanted to see if this was particularly successful for mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. Mm-hmm. Um, the design was randomized control trial. The, evi- the level of evidence was set at level one. Um, their methods were 58 patients with chronic mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy were randomized into either an eccentric contraction group or a heavy slow resistance training group both groups trained for 12 weeks. And then their measures were function, pain, swelling, neovascularization, which is another hot topic right now in uh, musculoskeletal and sports medicine. Mm-hmm. Neovascularization is something that's being used as a quantification measure for either uh, more of a uh, pathologic process at at uh, tendons, at ligaments. Um, and it's something that can be measured with ultrasound, so we'll briefly touch on that. Treatment satisfaction was another outcome measure, and all of these were assessed at zero, 12, and 52 weeks. So even though the groups were trained for 12 total weeks, Mm -hmm. they also did measurements at 52 weeks just to see if there was some long-term washout of the effect, Mm -hmm. and the analysis was performed on an intention-to-treat basis. Mm -hmm. So just to do a little bit of background on the types of contractions, A lot of uh, sports medicine uh, physicians currently are having some semantic issues with the terms eccentric contraction, saying that you can't really have a lengthening contraction. Contraction in and of itself denotes shortening of a muscle. That makes sense. I understand that. It's kind of semantics, but I understand it. So what they've started to say is eccentric action versus concentric action because you're firing the muscle. In one, obviously, there's lengthening, in the other, there's shortening. So, mm-hmm. with eccentric action, when a muscle is under load, it contracts against the load, but it lengthens. So, um, sports physiologists typically call these deceleration contractions. Mm-hmm. Concentric contractions, are your typical contraction that your lay person will think of when you say, you know, activate that muscle, you shorten that muscle. So, when a muscle under load contracts and the force generated by that muscle is enough to overcome the resistance, therefore, the muscle shortens. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, there are other types of contractions, but we won't really get into isometrics and isotonics.
0: I think those uh, sports medicine doctors are being a little picky with that. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's semantics, (laughs) but you know, it's kind of like that thing. I think we mentioned it in our last uh, muscles segment where we were talking about um, right lower extremity versus right lower limb. Like some physicians are having issues with the term extremity because extremity kind of is talking about your most distal segment of the limb, but anyway, (laughs) anyway. Um, So, what's Achilles tendinopathy? Patients with Achilles tendinopathy, and this is a direct quote from the uh, from the study, patients with Achilles tendinopathy typically complain of pain or stiffness two to two to six centimeters above the posterior calcaneus. They're likely to be casual or competitive athletes who have recently increased their training regimen beyond their tendon's ability to heal from the microtrauma and repetitive stress, or who have been training rigorously for a long time. Usually, what you see is a history of excessive supination. Increased speed of work or hill training or improper or a combination of worn out footwear. Um, and then the pain is usually described as burning, worse with activity, better with rest. Um, so tendon injuries, a little bit of epidemiology, tendon injuries is thirty to fifty percent of all sports injuries, fifty percent of elite endurance runners have been have been shown to have some of this. We'll give you guys the citations for this, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Yeah, it will be in our uh, podcast, uh, the description on iTunes or Podbeam or whatever you're using to listen uh, to the podcast today. Perfect. So you'll be able to you know, verify some of these sources. Achilles tendinopathy is the clinical diagnosis in over 50% of Achilles tendon disorders. So somebody comes in with Achilles tendon pain, I mean, your differential diagnosis can be huge. Um, there's going to be a list uh, anywhere from calcaneal blursitis, tendon rupture, sprains, OA, neuropathies, claudications, DVT, but Achilles tendinopathy tends to be in your musculoskeletal clinic, your most common uh, Achilles tendon pathology. Mm-hmm. To tie in a little bit of clinical stuff, most of us have learned in medical school or throughout our, our residency training, Thompson's test. And Thompson's test is a test that's used for, for Achilles tendon rupture, for a complete rupture of the Achilles tendon, where what you do is basically you can have the patient. Um, kneeling on the examination table, or you can even have them prone on the examination table with their feet hanging off the edge of the table. And what you do is you have to firmly grasp the triceps surrey muscle group, so the gastrocnemius and soleus, and squeeze really tightly because what you're trying to do is uh, add tension to the Achilles tendon and a negative test would be if when you do so, you see the patient's foot plantar flex, Mm -hmm. and a positive test for for a complete rupture would be if there's no action at the ankle. Again, the sensitivities and specificities are not super, super high for this test, but I did want to put in a little bit of a clinical pearl in there. The researchers we're looking at is currently we don't have too many standardized techniques or laid out plans as far as, you know, load of progression, load of magnitude, what the frequency is, what your restitution or your rest periods between sets or even exercises or even sessions should be when you're trying to treat this particular disease. So it's it's a little bit difficult to really come up with black and white rules as to what works and what doesn't. So instead of focusing too much on that, they actually focused on two completely different types of contractions and, and built their training protocols around that.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, I think that's really interesting in terms of exercise in general, but particularly in rehab from different conditions, you know, there's still a lot of questions about, you know, dosage, duration, kind of treating it like a medication and getting all those details in place. Like we have, you know, how you take your antibiotic.
1: Yeah. Ben, you bring, you bring up excellent, an excellent, um, point, And that is in rehab medicine, it, it does make it, difficult as opposed to let's say a you know a community acquired pneumonia you know you know we we've got level 1 evidence telling us you know for how many days to treat with which antibiotics to treat and so on and so forth to yield you know your best outcomes with us it's not that simple so there does have to be a little bit of creativity to what we do mm-hmm. as as physiatrists um and who it will work for too right you know maybe there's someone out there
0: that one type of exercise works for and versus another type and you know who knows what goes
1: into that in terms of genetics and uh, microbiology and whatnot so absolutely and even the psychology of the patient itself like uh, him him or herself uh, i mean are they going to stick to the training Mm regimen you know this is actually where our therapy therapist colleagues really come come into play because they they're well versed in this they they deal with this on a daily basis so they're able to kind of help tweak what it is that a patient should be doing um so coming back to the article yeah um, they mention recent evidence and they cite in their study that heavy slow resistance performed three times weekly yielded superior long-term results compared to traditional eccentric loading regimens for patellar tendinopathy. So this is where they based their alternative hypothesis and uh, I quote, we hypothesized that heavy slow resistance would yield a more favorable clinical outcome compared to eccentric uh, training regimen. 58 recreational athletes so no elite athletes were here this is a little again this isn't your average person but it's also not your elite level professional level athlete um they varied from 18 to 16 years old we mentioned a 12-week intervention period and and up to a 52-week follow-up the data was collected between july 2009 and october 2012 fairly recent study um An experienced sports medicine physician determined the diagnosis of Achilles tendinopathy based on these factors, so Visa A, which is the Victorian Institute of Sports Assessment uh, for the Achilles, the VAS, visual analog scale for pain, physical examination, and pain of at least three months duration. So they wanted to make sure that they weren't uh, dealing with something just acute, but something that was chronic. They also used ultrasound, and they looked at anteroposterior thickening of the mid tendon level because again we were focused on the mid portion of the achilles they looked for hypoechoic areas with color doppler signals it's something that we look for in msk ultrasound showing us tendinopathy and they also looked at the Doppler signal uh, which is where they were looking at that neovascularization which we mentioned Mm -hmm. a little bit earlier what we're starting to see in msk is we're using that also as a measure to see if somebody's responding to treatment because um it's thought currently it's believed that neovascularization and um, neurogenesis in that area is actually responsible for some of the pain that patients are feeling with these chronic mm-hmm. uh, tendinopathies. So what they did with the Visa A is a self-administered questionnaire evaluating symptoms and the effect on physical exa- uh, activity. So this is essentially a functional score. The max score is 100. So the lower the patient scores, if somebody's scoring a 60, that's basically telling the, uh, the researchers that their symptoms are more significant and that there's a greater limit on the function. Oh, it hard Mm -hmm. for me to get out of bed in the morning. You know, I really can't go running right now. um, So on and so forth. This measure has been validated by other studies. Right. Um, So exclusion criteria. So less than a four week washout from any other treatment. So they didn't want anybody that within the last month had been, had, had undergone any other treatment, no cortical steroid injections in the past 12 months. So this was, you know, they really wanted to cut out any medication effect. They didn't want anybody with bilateral of disease. So they really wanted to kind of make it more of that this is a patient that doesn't have maybe some underlying factor contri- contributing to a tendinopathy, mm-hmm. but more so, you know, your typical MSK patient that comes in, hey, I've been running too much, you know, poor footwear, poor biomechanics, and so on and so forth. They, they didn't want patients with insertional. They were, Again, we were looking at mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. They didn't want somebody with enthesopathy because this is a totally different pathologic process in musculoskeletal medicine. Very so. difficult to treat. Right, and a different diagnosis, different treatment, so they're not looking at that. They they uh, excluded patients with systemic disease, rheumatological conditions, diabetes, etc., and no surgery or confounding lower limb ankle or uh, ankle mm-hmm. injury. Mm-hmm. So, if anybody had had you know surgery to that Achilles tendon or any other issue you know, down on that distal limb, they were excluded from the study. So, the two uh, uh, treatment groups for the eccentric contraction group it was your standard three sets. 15 slow repetitions. Um, They were supposed to take three seconds to complete each repetition. There were two-minute rest periods between sets, five-minute rest period between exercises. The treatment was done unilaterally, and then the patients were standing on the step of the staircase, straight knee and bent knee plantar flexion contractions were done, or eccentric contractions Mm -hmm. were done, or eccentric action, (laughs) if I want to be semantically correct. Mm Um, the patients received treatments twice a day, so they were done in the morning and in the evening, seven days a week. And we'll touch upon this a little bit later, but that seemed, that already, when I was reading this, that already jumped at me. Mm-hmm. as tough to get somebody to follow this, this training regime. 12 consecutive weeks, and then the load of, the, the resistance load increased gradually. Um, and what they used was a loaded backpack on the patients.
0: I like how specific they are though with uh, the exact therapy that they did. Yeah. And so it can be
1: reproduced, you know, uh, very consistently. Yeah. And then this heavy slow resistance group was done three times a week. So already there you jump from seven days a week to three mm-hmm. times a week. Um, Each session was three two-legged exercises, so there were heel raises done with a bent knee, heel raises done with a straight knee on the hack sled or the leg press machine, Um, heel raises done with a straight knee with a barbell, um, actually on the Smith machine, so the machine that kind of locks you in place, Mm -hmm. uh, so there's only two-dimensional movement. And then three to four sets each, two to three minutes rest between sets, five minutes rest between exercises, so that was very similar. And then the repetition schemes, they decreased from 15 to 12 to 10 to eight to six. So they were supposed to take three seconds during the eccentric or elongation phase of the contraction mm-hmm. and three cent- three seconds for the concentric phase of the uh, concentric contraction. And then their load increased from 15 repetition max to 12 repetition max to 10 to 8 to 6. So they were progressively increasing the load for these for these patients as they went. So both groups increased load over time. Both both groups 12 weeks. One of the groups seven days a week bid. Mm-hmm. One of the groups three times a week and only once a day.
0: Both both of those uh, both of those regimens seem like they'd give me tendinopathy if I didn't have it to begin with.
1: <laughs> Yeah, if you went from zero to hundred, yeah, that would probably be a quick way to give yourself some Achilles tendinopathy. Um, so, time under load was compared. So when they were running their statistics, uh, it was sixty-three minutes per week for the eccentric contraction group and forty-one minutes per week for the heavy slow resistance group. Um, as far as weekly session time is three hundred and eight minutes. In the training room for the eccentric contraction group and 107 minutes for the heavy, slow resistance group. Wow. So that's a big, big difference between those groups. Huge difference. That automatically will tell you whose satisfaction scores yes, are going to be which right. <laughs> So, um, which is, is going to be interesting when we get to, you know, the big reveal of who, you know, which group did better. But, I mean, imagine if you do that much better with that much less time in the training room. I mm. mean, you know you can probably extrapolate what your what your patient satisfaction scores are going to be. Other things that uh, that the protocols called for, no sporting activities for the patients in the first three weeks of intervention. I don't know why, and I didn't find in reading the, the study, why they only limited patients in the first three weeks mm-hmm. and why they didn't limit them the entire 12 weeks. That was interesting to me. Um, afterwards, the sports, you know, and sports is kind of a carte blanche, you know, They told these patients whatever you want to do after three weeks as long as your pain is less than or equal to 30 out of 100 or three out of 10 if we're going to use the more common scale that's used Mm -hmm. for visual analog scale so another thing that i found very interesting about this article is that the research team was impressively specific with their respect to their ultrasound technique and evaluation so this is how they did it they put the patients prone feet Mm -hmm. were hanging off the edge of the table neutral over the end of the table. No physical activity for 24 hours prior to the ultrasound evaluation. Um grayscale was set. I mean they, they give you even the optimization, the depth of the resolution, the gain that they used and which machine they used so that you can really reproduce this if you had to. Um and then they identified the thickest point and then measured that anteroposterior distance without including the epi or paratendon. So they're really just looking at the uh at the Achilles wow. tendon. And then uh the mean of three anteroposterior thickness measures were used for analysis. So very specific with their ultrasound evaluation and they they used the exact same ultrasonographer for every single um, measurement that was taken on all the patients. So there are some images which are very interesting for those of us that are interested in musculoskeletal uh, ultrasound that are going to be available. Um, They're directly mm-hmm. from the article showing the AP tendon thickness and showing colored Doppler activity. So that's the one that I found a little bit more interesting because that's a technique that is that is being, uh, that that's a factor that's being uh, measured more and more in musculoskeletal uh, research lately. So I guess just as a, a side note, so when they were looking
0: at the, neovascularization and the color Doppler and everything, are they, the neovascularity is a sign of tendon, tendinopathy
1: and the kind of the chronic, uh, tendon problems. Is that That right? That is currently what's being shown. And we, you know, maybe for another, uh, for another session, we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's currently something, that's a great topic We, we can talk about right now. That's being used as a measure for, uh, for worse prognosis of disease and for Mm -hmm. disease progression and for disease regression with treatment. So to see less and less neovascularization, to see less, less blood flow kind of in these little small capillaries Mm -hmm. that are popping up. I
0: guess the interesting thing too is though, you know, some of our treatment options like needling and things like that. We want to increase blood flow to, you know, injured areas. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to
1: kind of revisit that and go into a little bit more detail. And that's a, uh, that's a great point too, because sometimes we do want more, more blood flow. Sometimes we want less blood flow or sometimes we're using it as a marker. Okay. So some of the results at the 12 week mark, patient satisfaction was 20 out of 25 for the eccentric contraction group, so that was 80% of the patients in the eccentric contraction group were satisfied with their results. Mm-hmm. For the heavy slow resistance group, it was 22 out of 22 patients, so 100%. And this was statistically significant mm-hmm. um, at point oh five two. so just barely, but it did, yeah. it did make it above, so it showed statistical significance. At 52 weeks, 19 out of the 25 uh, eccentric contraction patients were still satisfied, while uh, 21 out of 22 So, again, did show statistical significance at a P level of 0.01. And pretty good satisfaction overall, too. Overall, yeah, for both both groups, yeah. yeah. So the main finding of this study was that both the traditional eccentric contraction and heavy slow resistance yielded a positive clinical result in patients with Achilles tendinopathy in both short and long-term ranges. There were uh, improvements in levels of pain, in activity levels, functional levels, tendon thickness, and neovascularization, so all statistically significant across both groups. So, the improvements in activity levels, pain, tendon thickness, and neovascularizations were seen in both groups. Um, and again, you'll be able to see the, the statistics mm-hmm. themselves on the, on the publication on the website. Yeah. Um, but none of the improvements differed between the two groups, none of these particular improvements. Okay. So, between the two groups, uh, eccentric
0: and the high, the high load, uh, there's no difference in activity, pain, the tendon quality, basically, after uh, the... Uh, different interventions
1: right as far as uh, ultrasound evaluation goes yeah yeah wow
0: that's interesting and so what was is was there a difference in you know you kind
1: of touched on the uh, satisfaction was there a difference in
0: compliance Between the two groups?
1: So there was a difference in compliance between both groups. The mean training session compliance for the eccentric contraction group was estimated at 78%. Mm. And the calculated one for the heavy slow group was at 92%. And this was a statistically significant difference. What does that mean? Kind of real world application of this in the clinic. You know, if you're going to put your patients through both of these, if both of these training regimes have been shown to improve patient functional outcomes, patient pain levels, and even... um, Tendon quality, uh, under ultrasound evaluation. Um, why would you put somebody through the eccentric training regime, which mm-hmm. has been the standard of care up to this point? Um, and I think that's what they're arguing with the paper that heavy, slow resistance concentric contractions mm-hmm. will have higher compliance, you know, greater than 90% and you're still going to have functional outcomes that are not statistically significant with, you know, when compared to eccentric contraction, I mean, you're going to have to put these people in the gym only three times a week versus mm-hmm. seven days a week BID. I mean, kind of commonsensically, you would think I want to put somebody in, in the regime that they're probably going to stick with if I want my patients to get better. Yeah. Um, so,
0: yeah. so, uh, it, just to, to clarify, were they, uh, for each of these sessions, were they going to a gym? Were they getting taught it and then doing it at home? Um, how, Was it all with physical therapy that they were having this regimen done? I assume they weren't going in seven
1: days a week, twice a day. No, they weren't. So what they were doing is their first session and their second session and then the session at the one week mark were all done with a therapist. Uh, supervising and giving them instructions and walking them through. Afterwards, they had a journal okay. and they had to record a, every single thing that they did and it was based off these journals that the researchers were uh, basing their compliance. Got it. So, so yeah. So, I think that's a really valuable,
0: you know, I think, first off, I think it's a really excellently done study. I, I like how specific they were in terms of their measurement and interventions and something that can be very reproducible so you know if somebody wanted to try a different training regimen now you know it'd be easy to build off this and give uh, a new way of doing things so whether that'd be you know oh eccentric once a day how does that compare you know so it's very easy to um really build off this study so i I think this is really interesting and it is something practical practical that we can give to our patients in terms
1: of uh different options in terms of their exercise regimen Definitely. There were a few things that I really liked about this study. It was the kind of the combination of the physical therapy and the MD side of, of kind of the approach to, to this treatment for this particular disease. It's a lot of the things that we see with musculoskeletal medicine. But it's not as simple as just writing a script and saying, hey, I have a patient with a case tendinopathy, you know, PT, eval, and treat. I mean, you can be more specific than that. And us as physiatrists, I think it really falls on our shoulders to really take that extra step. And th- this kind of research is really what's going to help us, you know, guide these patients to better outcomes
0: my last question i guess would be does it mat? is this article saying it doesn't matter what type of exercise you do or is it saying that um it has to be more slow is that kind of the the basis of the the exercise and it doesn't matter if it's eccentric or concentric as long as it's a slow exercise or did you have any thoughts on that in terms of why both
1: would work approximately equally their conclusions, and again I'll quote In conclusion, the results of this study do not support their initial hypothesis that heavy slow resistance would yield a more favorable clinical outcome compared with traditional eccentric contraction regimens. Mm-hmm. Decentral contraction and heavy slow resistance training regimens are both effective in the treatment of chronic mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, and the improvements achieved at 12 weeks, at the 12-week mark, lasted for one year, irrespective of the exercise mode. That being said, they also mention the interesting finding, and it's not something they also, in their limitations, mentioned that um, they weren't aiming to see You know who was more compliant and which was more which patient group was more satisfied but they did uh, fortunately gather data on that and the data was statistically significant showing you that a compliance was higher with the heavy slow resistance and that b patient satisfaction was also statistically Mm -hmm. higher with the um with the heavy slow resistance so to kind of, I, I hope that answered your question. I think logically with somebody that has Achilles tendinopathy, you'd want to you know, steer, steer away from explosive you yes, know, plyometric type, yes. type yeah, training yeah. because you could exacerbate the situation. Mm-hmm. But um, that's not a question that was asked or answered or touched upon in this study. Um, their question really just focused on, hey, look. Current research for other tendinopathies is showing that eccentric contraction may be kind, eccentric regimens may be a little outdated. Mm-hmm. And what if we use heavy slow resistance, mm-hmm. which doesn't require seven times a week training, mm-hmm. um, it, and and is it going to be successful for the patient? Is it going to yield positive clinical outcomes? And I think the that answer yes, heavy slow resistance is is uh, does yield a favorable outcome. Does it yield a favorable outcome? More so than eccentric contraction, they said no. So their mm-hmm. their their alternative hypothesis was uh, dispelled. They mm-hmm. showed that it's it's not one is not better than the other mm-hmm. uh, for clinical outcomes, but um, but they did show that uh, patients will stick to heavy slow resistance more so than eccentric contraction. I think that's a pretty important clinically yeah. important finding.
0: Well, it's great. Uh, I think this is. Uh, really awesome article, and thanks for presenting it, Paolo. Of course. Thanks for the o- uh, opportunity, Ben. So uh, things are slowing down here at AAPNR, but uh, thank you guys for listening. As usual, you can contact us at pmnrblast at gmail.com. That's P-M-R-B-L-A-S-T at gmail.com, or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, thanks, guys, and we'll be back with you soon. Bye.